thanks for coming, uh, both the people here who get the free lunch and the people watching online who don't. Um, we'll be looking today at uh, Michael Mandelbaum's new book um, called Mission Failure, America and the World uh, in the Post-Cold uh, post War Era. I'm John Mueller, a senior fellow here and also a professor of political science at Ohio State University. So let me briefly um, introduce Michael, and then we have two commentators, and we'll kick things around, maybe Mandelbaum around a little bit, uh, and then open up for questions uh, at the end. Um, the, um, Michael Mandelbaum is extremely well known. He's written 15 books, uh, 14 of them on foreign policy, and one on sports. And uh, this is his most recent uh, effort. As you can see, it's a uh, critical evaluation of the American foreign policy since World War II, since, since the end of the Cold War, since 1993, to, uh, basically 1993 to, to, to 2014. Um, he is the Christian A. Herter Professor of American, public, American Foreign Policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, uh, and uh, from just up the block a ways. So he will first be introducing the book and explaining you know, what, he's, what he's all about and so forth. Uh, the two commentators will be, first of all, uh, Brad Stapleton, who's a visiting research fellow here at Cato. Uh, he got his PhD from UCLA and is uh, working on defense and foreign policy issues, uh, particularly ones dealing with transatlantic security issues, including the uh, currently forming, apparently, European Reassurance in Initiative, um, and um, has done a lot of work in that area. Uh, secondly, uh, second commentator will be Kier Lieber, who is a uh, associate professor in the uh, Walsh School of Foreign Service. He's a core, also a core at uh, Georgetown University, um, and he is also a member of the uh, Center for Security Studies and the Security Studies program there. Um, he is recently named by the Carnegie Corporation of New York as one of the country's most innovative scholars. Um, he's currently working on a book project uh, about nuclear weapons and the new era of strategic instability uh, with Daryl Press of, the, of Dartmouth College. Um, he's had long experience dealing with issues like uh, uh, nuclear weapons, deterrence strategy, U.S. foreign policy, and international relations theory. Um, the, uh, we'll have the format, as I mentioned before. Uh, then after that, there's lunch upstairs, just up the spiral staircase. And also, we have copies of the book for sale for the unbelievable price of $16. Oxford University Press is getting very aggressive about marketing their books, a very good sign. Um, so if you're interested, that's about half price. Uh, if you're interested, the books will be for sale out, out, uh, out in the lobby here. Okay, let me introduce Michael Mandelbaum. Well, thank you, John. Uh, and let me thank Cato in general and John Mueller in particular for making this possible. It's a pleasure and a privilege. And uh, I want to thank Brad and Keir for making time uh, to serve as commentators. Uh, I will give you what I trust will be a brief overview of mission failure. I recognize that in these circumstances, when a speaker uses the word brief, that's a signal to dig in for a long siege. But I hope to do better than that. Um, this book is a history of American foreign policy uh, between 
1993 and 2014, and it rests on five premises. The first premise is that this was an unusual, perhaps a unique period in the history of American foreign policy, and perhaps in the history of all great powers, in that the United States faced no serious security threats. That meant that this country had an unusually wide range of choice in formulating and executing its foreign policy. Second premise, it used that range of choice to engage in what is misleadingly called nation building. I say misleading because what the United States did actually involved two distinct, although closely related, undertakings. One was indeed nation building, trying to create a sense of national community among different peoples. And the other is properly called state building, constructing the institutions of modern governance where they do, do not exist. Third, uh, this endeavor, these missions of transformation, were common to the three presidential administrations of the period about which I write, those of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. And missions of transformation are common to a very wide range of American foreign policies during this period. They are a common thread running through American policy toward and in China, Russia, Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, and the wider Arab world. The fourth premise is that all of these disparate engagements had a common outcome. They all failed. In none of these places did the United States succeed in nation or state building, and the reason is common to all of them Neither the United States nor any other country, no matter how powerful, has the power actually to create a sense of national community or by itself to build the institutions of modern governance. That has to be done by the people of the country itself. And my theme can be and has on occasion by, be, by me been summarized as it was up to them, and they were not up to it. Fifth and finally, the period the book covers is now at an end. The defining condition is not present. The United States does face serious security challenges. Well, let me say a little bit more about each of the countries that I've mentioned. The undertaking of missions of transformation began at the very beginning of the Clinton administration with its China policy. You'll recall that that policy was to link a, an improved Chinese performance on human rights to trade privileges. Trade privileges were, be, were to be contingent on the Chinese honoring and respecting human rights. And if the communist autocracy in Beijing had complied, that would have represented a transformation of the Chinese political system. But of course, the Chinese didn't. They said no, the Clinton administration quickly backed down and in fact reversed its policy. The administration had better luck in Russia, where Boris Yeltsin, the first post-communist leader, 
welcomed American help in constructing a free market economy and a democratic political system. Well, Russia has a rough and ready, although highly imperfect and massively corrupt market economy, but the initiatives in the direction of democracy that Yeltsin undertook have all been rolled back by his authoritarian successor, Vladimir Putin. The failure of the mission in Russia was not the fault of the United States. It was due to shortcomings in Russia itself. The autocratic political tradition, the lack of any democratic experience in Russia's history, the accident of Yeltsin's successor being a firmly anti-democratic person, and the dependence of Russia on energy resources. Russia is a petrostate, and for a variety of reasons, as many of you know, certainly the, the gentlemen to my right and left know, petrostates tend not to be democracies. Well, the Clinton administration also embarked on so-called humanitarian interventions in Somalia, in Haiti, in Bosnia, and in Kosovo. And this represented an innovation of sorts in foreign policy. The United States was using military force not to advance American interests, but to advance to reinforce American values. There were no interests, economic or strategic, in these places. The United States did succeed in every case in removing the cause of the, or at least the proximate cause of the humanitarian crisis, a government that was oppressing its people, although in no cases did this represent a large military achievement. But in the end, the United States did not make any of these countries prosperous or democratic, and in some cases they were not and still are not even peaceful. Then came the attacks of September 11th, which had a profound impact on American foreign policy. They led to three wars that the United States would not otherwise have fought. The War on Terror, about which John Mueller has written eloquently and on whose writings I have depended for writing the section on the War on Terror, and then the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghanistan displayed the same pattern. The United States did remove the Taliban, and for a time, the lives of Afghans improved. They had nowhere to go but up. But uh, Afghanistan is still plagued by an insurgency, and if and when the American troops all leave, its future is quite uncertain. As for Iraq, there the United States failed at both nation and state building, and it followed another familiar historical pattern, an older one, one that dates back to the uh, Korean and Vietnamese wars. This is a pattern uh, established in uh, John Mueller's path-breaking book, War, uh, Presidents, and Public Opinion. In all three wars, uh, the American military role started out as popular, but became unpopular as and because American casualties rose. In all three cases, the American public never turned against the professed goals of the war, but the public decided that the price the United States was paying was too high and it wasn't worth doing. 
Now, there are a number of narratives that have sprung up, both during and after the Iraq War, that take the position that if only the United States had done something differently, if only it hadn't made the mistakes it made, could have achieved a much better outcome. Some argue, for example, that if only Ambassador Bremer hadn't disbanded the Iraqi army, things would have been more peaceful. Others argue that if only President Obama had not followed through on the original commitment by George W. Bush to to withdraw all American forces by 2014, all that followed, including the rise of ISIS, would not have occurred. In the chapter on Iraq, I explain why, and, and by the way, Iraq gets its own chapter. There's a whole chapter devoted to Iraq. And I explain why I find these counter-narratives unpersuasive. My conclusion, it's of course a matter of judgment, not a matter of fact, but my conclusion that, as, that in Iraq, as in other places, America undertook a mission impossible. Uh, the book's last chapter deals with the end of the post-Cold War era. And it ended because its defining conditions ceased to obtain. During this period, the United States faced no serious security threats. But now there are real security challenges confronting the United States, perhaps not as serious as during the Cold War, but serious nonetheless. In East Asia, China is mounting a maritime challenge in the Western Pacific. In Eurasia, Russia has resumed its unfortunate national habit of invading other countries. And the nuclear weapons programs of Iran and North Korea are approaching the point at which they will pose threats not only to American interests, but to the continental United States itself. So the period this book covers is at an end, not only, indeed perhaps not mainly, because all of the missions fail, but also because the United States has more important things to do now beyond its borders. Now, uh, you may uh, have uh, decided in the course of my remarks that I've left out some important points and some important issues, and indeed I have. In, In fact, I deliberately left out all the good parts of the book to give you a greater incentive to buy it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as a longtime admirer of Mike's work, I'm uh, honored to be able to participate on a discussion of his new book. And since I've been thinking and writing about many of the issues uh, addressed in Mission Failure, I find it to be an extremely timely and important book. After more than a decade of war, it's essential for the American national security community to begin reexamining the fundamental bases and goals of national security policy in the United States. And I think this book provides an excellent foundation for conducting what John Foster Dulles might call an agonizing reappraisal. Um, Looking back over the past 25 years, the United States' mission to promote democracy abroad and accomplish nation building in all the countries he mentioned certainly seems like a failed enterprise. The United States has failed to catalyze uh, 
the construction of stable, prosperous democracies in Russia, China, Haiti, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the list goes on. Yet as I was reading Mission Failure, I kept thinking about time horizons. Democratization is typically a long-term process in which states initially revert back and forth between democracy and authoritarianism before consolidated democracy ultimately takes hold. The reason democratization usually takes a few tries is because it takes time and practice to develop the norms and institutions that are indispensable to sustainable democracy. Vibrant civil society, respect for human rights, the rule of law. As Mike notes a number of times, the reason democracy took hold in Central Europe following the fall of communism is that many of those countries had a history of strong state institutions and previous experience with democracy. It's also easy to forget that following the French Revolution in 1789, it took over 80 years for democracy to finally take hold in France. So although today the French Revolution looks like a, a watershed in the development of democracy in France, after only 15 years in the aftermath of the French Revolution, uh, given the reign of terror and the ascension of Napoleon, uh, it very much could have looked like a fail, uh, failed attempt to democratize. So rather than viewing cases such as Egypt's reversion to military dictatorship as instances of failed democratization, one might therefore view them instead, taking the long view, as early steps on a long road to democratization. But since the United States experiments in nation building appear at this point to be such failures, it is certainly tempting to adopt a grand strategy oriented more towards securing the United States national interests rather than promoting our values abroad. Yet the analysis of mission failure seems to suggest that over the past 25 years, values and interests have actually become increasingly intertwined in US foreign policy. For instance, the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and the subsequent efforts to construct Western-style democracies there were motivated largely by a compulsion in the wake of 9-11 to ensure that threats to American security could no longer emanate from those two countries. The Bush administration evidently believed that U.S. strategic interests would be best served by promoting the spread of Western values. It's therefore more than a bit ironic that the unprecedented level of security that the United States enjoyed at the end of the Cold War enabled Washington to embark on a mission to promote the spread of democracy throughout the world, yet the United States' two biggest enterprises in nation building were spurred by an intense and exaggerated sense of insecurity. So given the intermingling of interests and values in US foreign policy, I'm somewhat skeptical that the return of great power politics marked by increasingly bellicose behavior from China and Russia, will prompt the United States to abandon its nation-building mission. For even in the midst of increasing tension in Eastern Europe and the South China Sea, the Obama administration has faced continuing temptation and pressure to intervene in the Middle East. For instance, although the president resisted the temptation to play an active role in Libya following the ouster of Gaddafi, Recent news reports suggest that the administration may be warming to the idea of sponsoring the deployment of an international stabilization force to underwrite the country's flailing democratization process. And given that President Obama has come under continuing pressure to actively contribute to the Syrian rebels' efforts to oust Assad, it seems entirely possible that the next administration might feel compelled to play a more proactive role in attempting to transform the Syrian state. 
So I think the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia may cause the pendulum, pendulum to swing back in the direction of traditional realpolitik, but since new habits die hard, I suspect that democracy promotion will continue to figure prominently in US foreign policy. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with promoting the spread of democracy. That goal is consistent with the norms and values on which the United States political system is founded. And democratization would almost surely improve the lives of millions of people living under authoritarianism, authoritarianism around the world. Uh, what's more, in the long run, the spread of democracy uh, could potentially produce a more peaceful world. If democratic peace theory holds, an increase in the number of dem democratic states would also reduce international conflict. Given those potential benefits, democratization seems to be an entirely worthy foreign policy goal. The problem, however, which is clear from this book, is that American leaders consistently fail to recognize or accept the limits on their ability to accomplish that objective. The United States' unrivaled power probably led American policymakers to overestimate their ability to transform the world. It is therefore high time to desist from attempting to catalyze democratization with military force. Rather than or orchestrating the overthrow of authoritarian regimes, the United States might do better by focusing on encouraging, cajoling, and even pressuring such regimes to introduce gradual liberal reforms. Such an approach is unlikely to yield short-term dividends, as is clear from uh, this book. But by encouraging the development of relatively vibrant civil society, the United States can potentially increase the probability that democracy takes hold when these countries do eventually transition. And here I think the case of Burma is instructive. Uh, and the case of Burma is not addressed in your book. But for the past five years, as most of you know, a military junta has exercised uh, authoritarian control over pretty much every sphere of Burmese society. Following the junta's suppression of popular protests in 1988, the United States imposed increasingly harsh political and economic sanctions on the country. For years, those sanctions appeared to produce little effect. Over the past five years, however, the Burmese regime has permitted a number of important democratic reforms. In 2010, Aung San Suu Kyi, the head of Burma's National League for Democracy, was freed from house arrest. Under the leadership of Thein Sein, a former general who assumed power in 2011, the Burmese regime freed most political uh, prisoners, relaxed media censorship, and conducted a series of relatively free parliamentary elections. As a result of those reforms, the National League for Democracy was able to secure a parliamentary majority in last November's elections, in so doing earning the right to form a new government. Now, Burma's democratic transition is certainly imperfect and probably reversible, and the extent to which U.S. policy contributed to that process is unclear. Nevertheless, I think the case suggests that sustained pressure, both domestic and international, can foster gradual, relatively peaceful democratization. Burma's experience will certainly not be replicable everywhere. Previous research has demonstrated that military dictatorships are typically more willing to relinquish power voluntarily than other types of authoritarian regimes. And particularly in per personalist dictatorships, authoritarian regimes do things like censor the media, ban non-governmental organizations, imprison dissidents in order to suppress potential threats to their authority. And in order to build a strong political base, they also do things like bestow a range of lucrative political favors upon narrow socio-political segments of society. 
Insofar as regimes think that such policies are indispensable to their political survival, international pressure is unlikely to prompt authoritarian rulers to abolish those instances of corruption and violations of civil liberties um, in response to international pressure. So for me, the most important takeaway from mission failure is that policymakers should recognize that the United States' ability to catalyze democratization is extremely limited. We can and should help and encourage other countries to introduce liberal reforms, particularly in the aftermath of revolutionary events such as the collapse of the Soviet Union or the Arab Spring. The United States should certainly do employ all the leverage at its disposal from economic sanctions to democracy aid to encourage new regimes to institutionalize democratic reforms. But ultimately, building democracy is a long, tortuous process that societies must accomplish and navigate on their own. For many in Washington, that may be difficult to accept. But after more than a decade of war, it's time to recognize the inherent limits of US power. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, just very quickly, a uh, summary of Mike's book in, in, in my mind. I mean, one of the key things he didn't mention is that this period from 1993 to 2014, he sees as truly one of the four most distinct periods in U.S. foreign uh, policy history. And this is a period in which the U.S. embarked on multiple missions to transform the internal politics of other states. Uh, in a sense, we wanted to make others over in our image and in doing so to, to get them to adopt American values and institutions. Uh, this was a shift from the Cold War in which we were concerned with a defense of the West, a shift to the extension of the West. Why did this happen? He points to a number of different causes. Uh, I counted at least four. Uh, first of all, and most importantly, because we could. Uh, given U.S. relative power at the end of the Cold War, uh, we couldn't help ourselves. Um, this is a permissive cause, the, the, the hegemon's temptation to go out and change the world. Second reason is because of the promising uh, recent history. You know, looking back in 1991, 1992, 93, the idea that American values and institutions were, were, you know, could easily spread were supported by the wave of elections and democratic constitutions that we had seen in the wake of the Cold War. Third, there are foundational ideas here at work. Uh, the American impulse, the liberal impulse, um, all kinds of beautiful lines, of course, that we all know about a city on a hill, a, 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 you know, a shining light unto other nations. The, the, you do not want to underestimate the power of these fun, foundational ideas in American history. And then fourth and finally, and, and maybe what will be the source of my greatest ire in my remarks, is the U.S. foreign policy establishment itself. Um, whether, you know, one quote after another from Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton, for example, about the unique role of the U.S. to spread American values and institutions everywhere. This is in our DNA, right, because we are the indispensable nation. We stand taller. We see further. Okay, you know the point. In the conclusion, Mike refers to this as the golden interval without power politics. And what he it is clearly not a golden interval in hindsight, but in terms of the opportunity that the United States had uh, uh, between 1993, after, 1990, after the end of the Cold War, 
But all of these missions failed. All of the missions to transform the inter internal politics of China, Russia, Somalia, Haiti, the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Arab, broader Arab world, all of these missions failed. Why? Because the strongest, like Russia and China, simply resisted our, uh, uh, our mission because it was a threat to their rule. And the weak states, the weak countries that were a target of our mission, lacked any of the conditions necessary for the growth of American values and institutions and democracy and freedom more generally. Mandelbaum speaks of a restoration of the era of power politics that occurs 2014 um, because of Chinese and Russian assertions of their traditional interests. This might have been inevitable. One gets the sense that it was inevitable. But he argues that US actions helped precipitate this return to power politics. He mentions three actions in particular, the Iraq War, NATO expansion, and America's role in the peace process. I actually think the latter is, is largely irrelevant to, uh, uh, this is a disagreement, I think, with Mike here about the importance of America's role in the peace process in terms of provoking reactions by others in a return to the, the era of power politics. By far, NATO expansion and the Iraq war, I agree, were crucial there. You didn't agree to a free lunch to hear a praise of the book, but I will offer the obligatory praise, and I really do uh, um, believe this. I think it's a terrific book. I mean, rarely have I sat down and read every word of a you know 400-page book plus about 80% of the footnotes, and and, and really liked it. Um, he, he offers a persuasive thesis, one that I agree with, uh, uh, compelling evidence. It's also just a great read, depending on if, if you lived through this era or not. If, if you're not familiar with this recent history, this is a one-stop shop to get the history of US foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. For those of us who lived through it, it's an, I think it, it's an excellent combination of background and context, um, uh, balanced insights, and occasional humor. You know, no one uh, can do this as well as John Mueller, of course, but uh, uh, Mike occasionally made me laugh. He also made me cry, as, uh, as Brad um, suggested. It's quite an agonizing effort to relive uh, the, the history of the 1990s in terms of, and, and 2000s in terms of U.S. foreign policy, just in, mainly in terms of the missed opportunities and, and cockamamie thinking that went on. It's really kind of devastating. Uh, the result is a devastating critique of the liberal transformative impulse and the disastrous record, and its disastrous record in U.S. foreign policy. And all of my criticisms fall under the category of I wish he had done more, or what do we do now, or what can we do to put the nail in the coffin of this transformative mission. But this book is a must read, uh, especially in this town. I have four uh, critiques. Uh, the first is, you know, why does realism not feature more prominently? In fact, why, why does realism get, I think, short shrift in this book? Second, what, what explains the staying power of the US foreign policy establishment? Third and fourth, third, should the title be Mission Failure or Mission Impossible? This is not splitting hairs. I'm sure you contemplated both titles, but there's, a, there's an important difference there. And then finally, why, is, why Mike, are you not Obama's biggest fan? Yeah. First of all, let me descend from the uh, ivory tower. I won't offer a, a theory a, a, a lecture on realism and idealism, but I think um, the longstanding debate between realism and liberalism is really the 
core frame of the book. Mike is hardly ever explicit about the fundamental debate, and he, I think, resists giving explicit credit to the persistent and vocal realist critiques that existed of US foreign policy and of the US foreign policy establishment uh, through this period. Um, I think this book should be seen as an important contribution to an old debate. But just so we're clear, the old debate, um, at, at, since, uh, Mike, your wife's not here, right? I, can, I was going to make a comparison to E.H. Carr's 20 Years Crisis. But when I was reading this, which is high praise, uh, it reminded me a lot of that book, where Carr is critiquing the, the dominant idealism, utopianism of the first half of the 20th century, and interwar period in particular. Um, I think Carr, Niebuhr, uh, and Hans Morgenthau and other realists at that time were arguing against this utopian idealism in the first half of the 20th century. And then in the latter half of the 20th century, you've got all kinds of realists arguing against uh, a liberal internationalism and today a, a, a cabal of liberal internationalists and neoconservatives, I would call it, is the target of the realist critique. But the Critique is similar um, uh, across time. What, what, what do realists critique about the liberal vision, which I think I, I see everywhere in Mike's book? First of all, realists see the tragic limits of man's ability to solve the world's problems. Realists see the risks of trying to do so to solve these problems without understanding the limits of power and the limits of our, our abilities to do this. Uh, realists point to the dangerous um, delusion of uh, Manichaean thought that, that there's pure evil and pure good out there and the dangers of crusading for, on the, on, in favor of the white hats against the black hats. Um, uh, realists argue about the misplaced faith in the natural harmony of interests among states, that you know, all states want peace in the world. And if we see conflict, then it's a result of mistakes, irrationality, or misperceptions. Realists are critical of the, the belief in the power of right reasoning. If we could, through education or through reform, discover, you know, states would discover the harmony of interest, and then they could live in peace. Um, realists critique the liberal view of benign public opinion. When states do bad things, it's because of bad leaders. If we could only have the people, uh, uh, people's beliefs, desires, et cetera, work their way to the top, we wouldn't see this bad kind of behavior. And most importantly, realists critique the liberal view of the existence of universal values out there. Um, the, the closer we come to understanding these values, the closer we'll come to peace. There are other realist critiques that resonated here, the persistent fact of unintended consequences of action, particularly when it involves the, the use of military force. My question is why, again, don't realists get more play get more props in this book. I don't understand it. It's not just because I don't understand why theory isn't front and center in this kind of book. Mike wants to reach a popular audience. And one of the quickest ways to lose an audience, probably like I just did, is to talk about the longstanding debate between realists and, and utopian idealists. But it doesn't make sense to me. Realists opposed in print the link between human rights and most favored nation trading status for China. They opposed NATO expansion for fear of alienating Russia. And by the way, I, I think Mike is a realist, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't play a role in this book in a way that it should. Realists favored the partition of Bosnia. Realists lamented human rights disasters, but argued that America wouldn't be willing to do enough given that solving these problems was not in its vital 
national interests. Realists opposed bombing in Kosovo. Realists, of course, opposed the Iraq war. Realists opposed Libyan, the Libyan and Syrian interventions and were correct about the return of power politics. Realists have always said that the rise of China is going to lead to trouble. And realists apparently are correct that NATO expansion would also only lead to trouble vis-a-vis -vis Russia. I also note that some realists argue that Ukraine should keep its nukes because of the danger of a resurgent Russia in the future. Yet, in this book, realism is mentioned only three times, page 83, 85, and 86, and no contemporary realist critic of the target that Mike is going after is mentioned. Ke George Kennan comes closest, but I have people like John Mearsheimer or Steve Wald or Barry Posen or other academics, in particular realists, that were quite vocal and were largely ignored, Again, despite their frequent and vocal arguments at the time in print, in foreign policy establishment journals, including foreign affairs and others. What's going on here? I think it's a really important question in light of the book's assertion, which is correct in my view, that there's a near total consensus in, U in the US foreign policy establishment, where there was until 2014, again, I'll pick up on this in a second, in favor of the transformation mission. Where, I think that's true, but there's plenty of criticism of the missions before they happened, while they were happening, and after they're happening. And what I guess I'm asking for is, where's the accounting of this? Why do the same voices continue to be given prominence and power? Why are realists like Mearsheimer ignored and, and people like Samantha Power and Rice and Hillary Clinton herself, of course, uh, and all the neocons in the DC think tanks surviving and prospering and being uh, uh, listened to when it comes to foreign policy advice, despite people like Mearsheimer making the right calls year after year after year in the past two decades. Why does the New York Times have a column by a realist, or the Wall Street Journal, or the Washington Post? I don't know. I think the silence here is deafening and troubling to me, uh, and I think particularly concerning because of, at times, the book's praise of kind of non-realist arguments in the book. The one that really stuck with me, but I won't uh, get into now, is the, about the Iraq surge working, the myth of the Iraq surge working um, until kind of Obama pulls the plug. Um, uh, I suggested to Mike that I think there's some ambivalence here about what the US should do vis-a-vis -vis Russia and, and, and Syria, Russia over Ukraine and in Syria. Um, again, the two biggest mistakes in Mike's view are NATO expansion and the Iraq war, and both were clearly opposed by realists. So where does Mike stand? Why not me be more explicit about your worldview? Why not be more explicit about the future policy implications of such a view as we move forward? Second, what explains the staying power of the foreign policy establishment? Yes, there is a long liberal tradition in American foreign policy thought. Yes, this was an incredibly permissive environment because of US power compared to the other great powers. But what explains the persistence of that power, the, the, the US foreign policy orthodoxy um, after the Cold War? Mike makes the case for a restoration in 2014, but like Brad, I wonder whether that transformation mission era is really over. It, I, it ain't over, unfortunately. Um, and we see constant calls today for more intervention in Ukraine, for intervention in Syria and elsewhere. 
We see a constant attempt to rewrite history through critiques of past behavior about the abandonment of Iraq and Afghanistan, about the destruction of US credibility given the Syrian red line on chemical weapons. Um, we see, again, the prominence of the same liberal internationalist voices in think tanks and in policy positions. Uh, and in the election, uh, upcoming election, we've got Hillary Clinton, whether if it's Hillary Clinton or Cruz, um, I think you're going to see the maintenance of this transformative mission. I wish Mike were right, but again, I don't think it's over. So why does the American public continue to put up with this SH blank T? I, I don't get it. It's a true question. Why does the US foreign policy, liberal, neoconservative orthodoxy live on? In the book, I tried to find the answer to this. Mike talks about, he says at one point that Americans are realists. Are they really realists? That was on one of the pages where he talks about realism. But on the one hand, he says yes, because they won't bear the costs for liberal missions, because they understand it's not in America's vital interest. On the other hand, he talks about and acknowledges the liberal impulse and how Americans are want to solve the world's problems in that way. I simply want to ask, which is it? And if it's the case that the American people are really realist, then why does the orthodoxy persist? Um, you know, it's interesting that realism remains a hard sell in America, right? All, all U.S. presidents have done realist things, but never do they couch them in realist terms openly, right? We always couch them in liberal rhetoric because that's what Americans want to hear. Again, I'm just puzzled by this. And I think in the end, we probably need to acknowledge that the popularity of Trump on the Republican side and, and Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side is due in no small part to American, the American people's reaction against the missionary era of transformation that this book is all about. OK, two final uh, points. Third, uh, should this title of the book be Mission Failure or Mission Impossible? Here, I just want to point out, I think there's a tension uh, that Mike is responsible for, a tension between, on the one hand, a set of convincing arguments that the mission to transform the internal politics of other countries is hopeless. And on the other hand, repeated comments that the US didn't actually expend much effort. Now, I, I think you lie on the, on, the, on the first side of the thing, that that hand weighs, uh, the, the first hand weighs uh, more than the latter hand. But it, I was left with the impression that you know, doing more could make a difference. Uh, if, if it's not the case, and I think that needs to be, much, you know, be stated clearly, would any reasonable expenditure of costs in terms of blood and treasure have succeeded in Somalia, Haiti, the Balkans, Afghanistan, and Iraq? Would greater exertion of effort have contained China or kept Russia down? What could we have actually done in Georgia or Ukraine? In fact, isn't the story that we did too much in terms of NATO expansion when it came to those Places. So what is the blueprint for victory in Syria, even if US leaders had a blank check to do whatever we want? Those are the questions I'm left with. And, and as you can tell, I clearly think most of these missions are impossible, not just failures. Finally, why aren't you Obama's biggest fan? In the latter part of the parts of the book, uh, Mike seems critical of the Obama administration. Again, never explicitly critical. But the impression I'm left with is that you do not agree with Obama's, uh, uh, the Obama administration's policies on Libya, Syria, Ukraine, the Iran deal, and all that. And I just ask, don't all these policies align with the anti-transformation advice of the rest of the book? 
remember in, in, in the Goldberg interview, and I'll end here, in the Goldberg interview in the Atlantic, of course, um, uh, you know, Obama explicitly says that he's trying to buck the foreign policy establishment. And I wonder, hasn't he tried to do that at every turn? And ha haven't the hardcore missionaries in this administration, the Samantha Powers or Susan Rice's and others, uh, more often lost the internal debates than, than they've won them? Obama withdrawals from Afghanistan and Iraq and it's uh, the Obama administration's reluctance to get involved in the quagmires in Ukraine and potential quagmires in Ukraine and Syria seemed like they should be praised by Mandelbaum not uh, and, and that he shouldn't leave us wondering kind of where he stands on Obama's administration. Thanks very much. Sorry to go over a little over. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Those are both very good uh, commentaries. I will respond again, I hope, relatively briefly to some of the points that Brad and Keir made. Uh, Brad made a, uh, an important point about the book, which I had in my notes and forgot to mention, which is that the United States didn't enter most of these countries. It didn't undertake these missions with the idea of nation building or state building the, in, in uh, the humanitarian interventions and wanted to stop the killing. And Iraq and Afghanistan were undertaken in response to September 11th. But they all turned into missions of transformation. And I say why I think that is in the book, that it was almost inevitable that the United States should uh, go down the slippery slope from the original motivation to full-scale nation-building. Uh, second, uh, Brad talked a lot about democratization, uh, and I agree that it's a good idea. Uh, I just don't think that we or anybody else can really do it, and he's surely right that uh, the process of democratization can be a long zigzag road, and we have to hope that countries that started it and then fell back will resume that path. But I think I say at one point in the book that given the American experience, while democratization is highly desirable and would be good for the United States and for the countries that don't have democracy, democratization from the outside is either impossible or unnecessary. Either countries, for their own internal reasons, will make themselves democratic, or they won't, and there's very little that we can do about it. Now, uh, there are, and I, I uh, wrote a book about this a number of years ago called Democracy's Good Name, there are forces that conduce to democracy, and one of them is what one might call the neighborhood effect. If you're living in a neighborhood that has lots of democracies and they're successful, chances are you'll be attracted to that form of government, and that was true of the Eastern Europeans. Um, and I would say that Burma, uh, or Myanmar, as I guess we're supposed to call it, but I still call it Burma, so I'm glad that Brad did, uh, would fit into that general category in the following way. The motivation for the generals, as I understand it, was in large part to find some counterbalance to China because Burma was on the way to becoming a, a resource colony of China and they wanted some counterbalancing. That could only come from the West 
uh, it could partly come from uh, other countries in the region, but those countries were more or less Western. Thailand is not a perfect democracy. Malaysia also not, but they're more or less in that category. And even communist Vietnam tilts now in foreign policy to the West, and that, I think, was the reason that uh, Burma has headed in this direction. Um, it was local uh, incentives. Now, on uh, Keir's points, uh, first on realism, I think a full reply would get us into a highly academic debate about what realism really is. Uh, but there are two reasons that I don't say much about realism. One is this is a, a work of history, uh, and that's what I was doing. Um, not a work of political science or a theory of international relations. But second, I understand realism in a particular way, and I understand a distinction between realism and what and realists' opinions on a wide variety of issues. I understand realism to be an empirical approach, not a normative approach to international relations, which uh, has a view of how nation states do behave, uh, not necessarily how they should behave, and that it has to do with external, uh, external behavior, not the internal composition of states. Uh, therefore, uh, E.H. Carr's book, The 20 Years Crisis, as I recall, I'm, sure, I'm certainly, uh, I have not read it as recently as Keir has, um, the Carr's argument was that Western policy toward Germany, uh, and in general, European policy, was based on the naive view that international law and the League of Nations were powerful and would make a real difference. And Carr said, no, that's not right. Nations uh, follow their own interests. Power politics is the coin of the realm. And therefore, the proper policy toward Germany was appeasement. He was an appeaser, and he wrote uh, editorials for the Times of London advocating appeasement, which later became notorious. So I don't see realism as I understand it, as being relevant to this, uh, this, this uh, uh, campaign of failed missions, except in the sense that the United States had the power to do it. And we know that powerful states, the, the strong do what they will, the weak do what they must. Well, this is what the United States wanted to do, and the reasons that it chose these missions are the ones that, that Keir mentioned. Uh, second, um, I, you, you said here that I don't seem unduly troubled about the carnage, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and exaggerating, about the carnage of uh, these missions or about their failures. And it's true, if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm paraphrasing you co correctly, uh, it's true that I don't think they did an enormous amount of damage. They did damage, but the damage was manageable. Uh, the casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan were relatively modest, certainly compared with Korea and uh, Vietnam, uh, as was the expenditure. By some reckonings, these two wars will together be the most expensive in American history, ultimately, uh, because of pensions and medical care and the like. But 
uh, at, even at the height of Iraq and Afghanistan, the proportion of GDP that the United States devoted to those wars was significantly below the percentage devoted during the Vietnam War and far below the percentage devoted to the Korean War. Those wars were more expensive, and of course the United States had a smaller GDP. So I give my view uh, of this issue at the end, at the, I think it's the last part of the conclusion, where I quote a line from Annie Hall, the, uh, the Woody Allen romantic comedy, where he says his philosophy of, of life is encapsulated by the joke about the two women in the restaurant, where one says, the food here is terrible, and the other says, yes, and the portions are so small. Uh, my version of that in the book is that uh, American missions were all failures, but they really weren't that important, so the damage was limited. The biggest cost, of course, was an opportunity cost. Um, third, uh, the, uh, uh, the question of the return of power politics, was it inevitable? I do not think it was inevitable where Russia is concerned. I think for reasons that I discuss in the book, we could have had a very different and far more benign Russian foreign policy. I, I don't think the United States and the West had much, if any, control about the evolution of Russian domestic politics, but I think we could have had an authoritarian Russia that was much more peaceful, more fully integrated into the Western security system, if not the economic order, uh, and that would not have invaded Ukraine. I, don't, I can't prove that. Uh, but that is uh, my view. China, I'm not sure that Chinese behavior could have been avoided. It could only have been avoided um, by suppressing or retarding Chinese economic growth. And there was a very uh, interesting article in the 90s by Dick Betts, who's certainly a realist, and Tom Christensen, who's a China specialist, saying, in effect, as I recall, that American foreign policy toward China was a test of realism versus idealism, that if the United States were truly realist, it would try to restrain Chinese economic growth because the more powerful and stronger and richer China became, the more trouble it would make, and that proved to be true. I don't think that there was ever a serious option for the United States to damp down Chinese economic growth because even if the United States had been willing to take serious measures to cut off trade and investment with China and uh, to, uh, to quarantine China economically, other countries I think would not have followed suit. That would have had something of a retarding effect if the United States had, had done it alone, but I don't think it, it would have in the end made a, a, a significant difference and I don't think it was sustainable. Um, so, um, the, uh, the final uh, point, uh, why am I not a fan of Obama's? Well, um, I wouldn't call myself a fan, but I think some of his policies were the right ones, and I think some are defensible. I, th I seem to be the only person in the United States whose opinion of Obama has risen during the time of his presidency rather than falling. That's because I was never, uh, I never, as I would say, as I would see it, drank the Kool-Aid. I never thought this guy was going to be transformational or that hope and change was any kind of a, uh, a serious policy. 
Um, and I, you know, I thought he was a, a standard liberal Democrat, probably more liberal than most who become president. That's who he is, and that's who he's proven to be. Um, but presidents are judged on how the major decisions they make turn out. And I think Obama made some, right, some good calls at the beginning, in particular his decision to continue the pullout from Iraq and not leave troops behind. And I, I go into some detail as to why that really wasn't feasible. And I would put special emphasis on his policy toward Afghanistan. He started out saying that this was the important war and approving a policy of nation building. And then when the military told him what it would cost in troops, he got sticker shock and he reversed himself. It was inelegant and awkward and clumsy, but I think it was the right thing to do. I do not think the United States has uh, a, a major strategic interest in Afghanistan, and I don't think it's worth keeping troops there, even if it reverts to Taliban rule. And I think it was rather brave of Obama to make that decision. At the same time, as I was writing this book, I read Steve Sostanovich's very good book on the history of American foreign policy since 1945 called Maximalist. And he argues that one of the reasons that Lyndon Johnson escalated in Vietnam, despite his grave reservations about it, reservations that are clear in the Johnson tapes and especially his conversations with Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, who was a close colleague in the Senate and who was chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and was dubious about this venture. The A principal reason was that all of his senior advisors were in favor of escalation. Well, most of Obama's senior advisors, excepting Vice President uh, Biden, were in favor of going into Afghanistan with both feet, and he overruled them. He overruled them, and I, I, I give him credit for that. Uh, I, I, I take great exception to his policy toward Israel and on the peace process, and I say what I think about the peace process in the chapter on the Middle East, and my argument was, is that it failed for the same reason that all the, the missions failed, except the American government never realized that a mission of transformation was what was required, a mission of transformation in Palestinian political culture. Uh, so uh, needless to say, I'm not at one with John Mearsheimer on that issue. Um, but um, the, uh, I've lost my, my train of thought. Oh yes, on Obama. Um, so I think he was dead wrong on the peace process. The peace process is not a major issue in American foreign policy. I cite it as one of the three mistakes because it caused unnecessary harm, but the, the harm uh, fell on Israel, not the United States. And Israel is a, a resilient country and, and, and is just fine. I certainly wouldn't compare it in magnitude to uh, the other two, to NATO expansion and the Iraq war. On the Middle East, uh, I have uh, real doubts about the Iran deal, and I've written about that at some length. It's odd that it's an odd deal in the sense that most negotiations tend to reflect the balance of actual power between the parties, but the Iranians were the ones who did well on this one, well, better than the United States originally said it would do, and I, and I think that has to do with Obama's extreme aversion even to threatening conflict. Um, 
And on Syria, as, as we were discussing in the green room, I think the United States does have some serious interests at stake in Syria, but I also think that uh, the obstacles to intervention are formidable, so I think the Obama policy is defensible, and if it were up to me, I think I'd probably carry out the same policy. So that, that uh, response was larger than my introduction, longer than my introductory remarks, but, but you were provoked. Uh, well, I thought, that, I thought that they were all uh, good comments. And, uh, I, you know, the point that, that Keir makes has been made by another author, so I've thought about it. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting comment. Oh, I, and sorry, John, one more point. Why the foreign policy establishment has managed to stay above water so long. Well, uh, in the Cold War, there was a Cold War. There was a major threat, and so there was a national consensus. During the post-Cold War era, despite the failed interventions, it really isn't all that expensive. There weren't all that many casualties. Uh, there weren't, uh, we didn't spend an enormous amount of money. It was all wasted, of course. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, the country did turn against the Iraq War and uh, eventually the Afghan War, and I believe that we may be seeing in the current presidential campaign, it's too early to say, the first real challenge to a globalist foreign policy that the United States has carried out since 1942 or 1948 or wherever you want to date it, uh, because there are serious presidential candidates opposing both free trade and the American alliance system. So, uh, you may, there may be a serious debate about what is really fundamental to American foreign policy. Um, but I, I do say in the book that in the post-Cold War era, with, it, with the exception of the Iraq War, foreign policy, which had been a, a first-order issue in American uh, political life, to which everybody paid attention, was debated on the, on the merits, was demoted because of the absence of a threat to a second-order issue. And on second-order issues in American politics, interest groups can also get their way. Intensity matters. We have an issue where a, a core of people are strongly for it and nobody's strongly against it. The, the people who are for it can get their way. And I believe and say in the book that in the post-Cold War era, the foreign policy establishment functioned as an interest group. Sorry for okay, the length. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, let me we'll open up to questions. I want to just ask one myself, if we can begin this. Uh, when, you, when Keir talks about carnage, uh, the issue in some respects is not American carnage, but the even carnage caused by the American intervention. Uh, in the case of Bosnia, for example, you could argue that the carnage was caused by the Yugoslavs in various forms, and the United States and others tried to stop it. But in the case of Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, and Libya, the carnage, which came, it didn't kill all that many Americans, you're certainly right about that, comparatively, uh, it came after that, and we were talking about hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of deaths in those areas. So would you add that to your, and that's, if you look at it from that standpoint. Yes, I think that's you. a fair point. There is a counter-argument for each of those cases, but not, I think, a strong one. That is to say, the, the biggest carnage in the Iran-Iraq war came from the sectarian civil war and the ethnic cleansing the war. The Iraq War, sorry. Um, but, uh, and that was 
beneath the surface waiting to bubble up. And given what happened a few years later in the Arab Spring, it's at least possible that it would have happened spontaneously. But there's no doubt that the American intervention opened the way to it. Uh, the other uh, comment I would make is that uh, Americans don't care about other people's casualties. The losses of, uh, to the Vietnamese uh, in the Vietnam War were upwards of a million, I think. Was, is that, was that a, yeah. an accurate? Yeah, total deaths are done. Yeah. Millions, millions and stuff, yeah. Uh, and Korea twice that. And, and Korea twice that. It's, it was never an issue in the debate about these wars, and it had nothing to do with their becoming unpopular. Now, you may say this speaks poorly for Americans, that they don't care much about other people, or at least about carnage inflicted by the United States. And I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect that other countries are no different. Okay, okay let's see. we have about 15, 20 minutes for uh, questions. Uh, we've got microphones out there. How about right down here in front? Uh, please wait for the uh, microphone. Uh, give a brief uh, description of who you are. And the questions are basically yeah. one sentence or two sentences. Steve, Stephen Shore. Interrogation. Stephen Shore, two very brief questions. It seems that every, it's the NATO expansion is getting a free pass as overreach. But I think, couldn't you make a compelling case both on realistic and idealistic grounds that uh, NATO expansion to the former Soviet satellites was justified. My second question is, in terms of China, where we press them on um, their be remaining a, a one-party dictatorship, could not one make a case that China is less of a threat to the United States as a one-party state than it would be were it to become a multi-party democracy? Well, let me respond to both of those questions, and then my colleagues can respond. And the answer to your, your second question is that it might be right. Uh, you can certainly find people who know China well who say that the people are more nationalistic and less responsible than the regime. Now, by democracy, I mean not just popular sovereignty, but liberty, limited government, the, the kind of thing that Cato is devoted to fostering. And I think that does make a difference, but uh, your point is valid. We don't know what a more democratic China would do toward its neighbors. As for NATO expansion, I, I don't think it's justified on two grounds. First, the arguments used by the Clinton administration in favor of NATO expansion were entirely bogus. They said that it was a device for making Eastern Europe de democratic. Eastern Europe was going to be democratic whatever the United States did. There's no evidence that belonging to a military alliance fosters democracy. They also assured everybody that Russia was fine with this, despite the fact that it was clear that Russia was not fine with this. Those of us who opposed NATO expansion, which included virtually everybody who knew Russia or the Soviet Union at all well, argued, and this group incidentally included both George Kennan and Richard Pipes, who as far as I know never agreed on anything else about Russia. Uh, we argued that the downside would be to alienate Russia, and so it did. Now, if you want to argue that Russia would inevitably have returned to its geopolitical ways, and uh, therefore it was important for NATO to take in all the countries on Russia's borders, 
the counter-argument is, first of all, it hasn't taken in all the, co- the countries in Rus- on Russia's borders. Georgia is not a member and was attacked by the Soviet Union. Ukraine was not a member and has been occupied, so, sorry, by Russia, not the Soviet Union. Um, second, uh, I believe, although I can't prove this, that it would have been possible to construct a European security order that included Russia, that reassured the Eastern Europeans, who of course had good reason to be wary of Russia, and that could have prevented the the aggressive Russian foreign policy in Europe. I am not an essentialist, and maybe I'm not a good realist in that sense. I think it could have been different. I can't prove it. But I also think that if Russia had shown signs of of recidivism, there would have been plenty of time to do what was necessary to give guarantees to its neighbors. I would just add, too, I I pretty much agree completely with your views on uh, NATO expansion being a mistake. And I, I would add that, you know, I also agree that this view that NATO expansion was necessary to consolidate democracy in, in Central Europe was bogus, as you put it. Um, but if the goal was to consolidate democracy in Eastern Europe, you know, there was another institution that was well poised and situated to do that, which was the European Union. Um, let, let me just add, because I forgot to say this, my apologies. If NATO was an instrument for democratization, the obvious country to be included was Russia. Hello, my name is Olivier Lewis. I'm a PhD student. I would like to ask a brief question about the European Union. You mentioned uh, the neighborhood effect. Um, I would argue that actually the EU was an active uh, participant in that effect in the sense that it gave accession agreements which led to negotiations. And all the states that only had uh, association agreements have been much more unstable than the states that became members or will become members, except for Turkey, who was blocked in many of its negotiations. So isn't this a counterexample to the idea that it's mission impossible rather than mission failure in the sense that the European Union succeeded in reforming many, many countries to the east? Uh, Well, I think the, the presence of the EU was helpful, although this raises the unanswerable question of how Western Europe would would have evolved after 1945 without the formal structure of first the EEC and then the EC and the EU. My own view is that it wouldn't have been all that different. Um, And I don't think that the EU association agreements were primarily responsible for the direction that the Eastern European countries took. They took that direction because all the people of the country wanted it, and that was based on historical experience the historical experience of Western Europe and the historical experience of Eastern Europe. So uh, I, I, don't th- I, I give the EU some credit, but I don't think it was decisive. Yeah, could, actually, could I add on that? Um, from your own book, you talk about the power of example, for example. Um, and in many respects, I think Western Europe uh, really formed this perfect example. We want to join that club once you're released from communism. And they didn't have to do anything. In fact, all they raised barriers. Okay, you have to do this, you have to do this, if you want to get in the club. Uh, and the, the countries, because they were driving to the West, wanted to join the West, were happy to do it. So it, it, uh, you didn't have to do anything. You just simply stay there and stand there and let them in the club when they passed the, the goals. 
Oh, James Sangs, there have been a couple of cracks about the mission impossible versus mission failure as titles. And obviously, there's a big difference between impossible and failure. Failure has a possibility of success. Impossible has no possibility of success. So I was wondering if you could riff a little bit more on whether you were, you, given the way you described the book, it sounds like you're really talking about mission impossible rather than mission failure. Uh well, uh, I do use the term mission impossible in the book, but I, I use the term mission failure because this is a history. It's about what happened, and what happened was that missions failed. I think it's pretty clear from the book that I'm very dubious about the possibilities for success, but you can't make categorical statements about this. Who knows? Maybe it'll work somewhere. You wouldn't bet on it. Well, that's not... Uh, that's not what history teaches, but you know the mission worked in with the British in India. Of course, they were there for a century, and uh, it worked in India and not in Pakistan because the British, the the Indian elite, especially the first Prime Minister Nehru, were very committed for their own reasons to democracy. So I don't I think it's a little presumptuous. I don't know. I you know I could have called it Mission Impossible, but I called it Mission Failure. Hi, I'm David Shah uh, from Cato Institute. Uh, there's two assumptions. The first one is uh, it's all right for U.S. to criticize the Chinese regime in general on the human rights issue, but never expect the U.S. would uh, have the real uh, encouragement or the support on the subversion of the Chinese regime because it's inconsistent with uh, the so-called U.S. national interests. The second assumption is that uh, it, it could be, for U.S., it could be more or less uh, competitive or, or in some way to lose their national interests if the China became the number one uh, after it turns to be a democratic uh, country. So some people, they, they will say, uh, assume that U.S. would never let uh, support uh, and hope China turns to be a democratic country, it, it could be much more powerful uh, than the, the dictatorship. So uh, I just, my question is, so what is the real U.S. national interest? Thank you. Uh, well, the real U.S. national interest is for China to become what Bob Zellick uh, said it ought to become, and that is a responsible stakeholder. Uh, obeying the rules, especially the maritime rules in the Western Pacific, and contributing to upholding the global uh, economic system. Um, that doesn't seem particularly likely with the present regime. Now, uh, we don't know what course Chinese political, the Chinese political system will take, Maybe it will become more democratic, but it won't be because the United States wants it to or tells the Chinese that it should. It will be for internal Chinese reasons. I have the impression, and I, I don't know whether this is right, but I've certainly heard it from people who specialize in China, that one obstacle to democracy in China is that the Chinese middle class, and it's a growing middle class, and we know that 
a large middle class is associated with democracy. The Chinese middle class doesn't want to disrupt party rule because it fears what the masses would do, uh, that it fears the, the great unwashed Chinese public. And although if you talk to these people privately, they'll say, well, of course, we think we should be able to participate in politics, but we don't want to rock the boat because things could be worse. The other thing I will say, and it's not part of this book, but the next one, is uh, there's very little chance that China will become, will displace the United States as the global hegemon for a whole host of reasons. But China certainly can become and seems to aspire to become the leading power in the Western Pacific. And the least one can say about that is that no other East Asian country wants that to happen. They'll take it. They, they've, been, they've been mining minerals there while we've been policing. They, they, that's Donald Trump's uh, over, right? view um, of the world. Actually, I think one of the reasons uh, Michael mentioned that uh, he's, his opinion of, has raised of Obama is because Obama's becoming more a Mandelbaumian. So, <laughs> uh, for example, in his, in his, in his uh, interview that was in the Atlantic, he says, I think we, Obama says, I think we have more to fear from a weakened, threatened China than a rising, successful China. Uh, and so that sort of fits what you're basically saying there. Okay. Up to a point. Okay. Back, uh, yeah. Eric? Blue shirt. Thank you. Um, two questions. The first, what will it take for, I guess, the realism to come back? Um, you said before it had a natural place in the sun when the Soviet Union was all the rage. Do we have to... <clears throat> lose some kind of major war or have some kind of major crisis in order for the uh, current institute or the current uh, establishment to get kicked out. Uh, second question, and thought I had recently, so this might be a bit underdeveloped, but the idea that China can be a responsible stakeholder, it seems very tied up with, can China do what the US wants it to do? Um, do you believe that there is a chance it could become a responsible stakeholder without necessarily doing everything that the United States wants it to do? And do you think that our definition of responsible stakeholder is a little bit too constraining for options? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, Here, do you want to kind of chime in on this? Oh, Amy, my, my, the first, uh, yeah, yeah, go, yeah. What was the first question? What will it take for realism? Well, uh, realism is a response to the world as it normally is. The American foreign policy of the post-Cold War era was a response to a very unusual circumstance, and uh, we have returned to normalcy, as Warren Harding would have said. Uh, and so the United States is likely to respond to what it perceives as threats, but since these are not direct threats to the United States, as the Soviet Union was or was perceived to be, there is some leeway for the United States to decide that although these countries are threatening China in uh, East Asia and Russia and Europe, it really isn't the business of the United States to have a forward deployed military to check them. Other countries in the region are wealthy enough to do that, and that would represent a sea change uh, in American foreign policy, and that's what we see signs of. Uh, in the presidential campaign. That doesn't mean it's going to happen, 
But I think the signs are more visible than they've been certainly since McGovern and maybe since Taft. And the second question was? Ah. Uh, well, well, it depends on how you define responsible stakeholder. Neither China nor any other country is ever going to do everything the United States wants. Uh, I would say that uh, responsible stakeholder means not undertaking these policies in the South China Sea. The East China Sea is a little different because there is a, a real dispute over the Senkakus, but uh, it means not trying to enforce the so-called nine-dashed line, which claims basically all of the Western Pacific as Chinese territorial waters, which by the standards of, um, of international law and international custom is absurd, and building a navy that seems designed to enforce that claim. Um, and it, now, in the international economy, China is not, uh, it's more like a free rider than uh, an opponent. Certainly takes full part in the international economy. It benefits from it. Uh, it deviates from what is regarded as normal free market practice in some major ways. It's not different in kind from other countries, but you could argue that it's different in degree. So abandoning some of those practices would help to make it a stakeholder. Uh, so I, I, I don't, I mean, China is not going to agree with the United States on all kinds of issues, but it could still be a responsible stakeholder as we regard the Europeans as being, even though they don't agree with us on everything. Uh, I, my guess is, it's only a guess, that China is not going to be what the United States, what the, the foreign policy establishment would generally regard as an adequately serious uh, stakeholder under the communist regime. I think it will take regime change, but maybe not. And I am not predicting regime change anytime soon. I just don't know. I, I think you could also argue that rather than worrying so much about China becoming a responsible stakeholder, the U.S might think more about how it can become a more responsible stakeholder. Uh, and to me, that's one thing that's clear from Mission Impossible, <laughs> um, is that over the past 25 years, um, the United States has conducted, in many ways, very reckless foreign policy. And you read all the time commentators talking about revisionist powers, Russia and China. Um, but when you look at the U.S. foreign policy record, as outlined in this book, the U.S. has been extremely revisionist in invading Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and trying to impose new regimes in those countries. So I think we might need to focus a little closer to home. Okay, let me add one comment to that. Uh, I think it's the case that internationally, for the international system, the United States is a status quo and conservative power. Within other countries, it's a revolutionary power. It might be my last chance. You're right, because I don't think realists are back. I mean, we're a pessimistic group as it is. Uh, but, you know, the idea that we're any, anywhere even close to a return to normal, if normal means the, you know, ultimately dominant, leave all the rhetoric aside of Cold War, 
um, U.S. Uh, uh, rhetoric, did, did when when values clashed with interests, you know, almost always U.S. leaders sided uh, um, uh, with self-interest, with some obvious mistakes uh, um, uh, along the way. But I look out and I see. Um, again, just I picked up the, the the front sections of the three papers that I get at home this morning, Post, the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, flipped to the editorial pages, you know, looked for columns, read the... I, I, I don't see in the in the media, um, in academia, um, in uh, the voices of the foreign policy establishment, any sign that there's really been a recognition of the costs of the Iraq war, the opportunity costs that we've squandered, the um, understanding that military power is rarely, you know, the, the, the precise tool that you think it is. A recognition that perhaps we've gone a little too far on the notion that the U.S. is the indispensable provider of public goods around the world. Um, and I also think that we're ignoring some real problems that lie ahead, which is, again, why I'm pessimistic. I mean, I, I find it very difficult to make the argument that the Japanese and South Koreans, that our alliance with Japanese and South Koreans is on solid footing. I, I, I mean, I'm, you know is whistling in the dark here. We, we got big problems, and um, I'm not sure the American people have been convinced uh, uh, one way or the other on this. Um, uh, I, I think we just have a long way to go before um, we abandon the liberal internationalist, neoconservative consensus that dominates the American uh, uh, foreign policy establishment and return to some semblance of realpolitik, which, again, I don't know if the American people are realists or not. That's why I asked the question. Sometimes I think they understand. Sometimes I think they don't, but nothing new there. Okay. It's impressive that Obama came into office opposing the Iraq War, and he appointed no one to high foreign policy office, as far as I know that had publicly and clearly opposed the Iraq war before it began. Same and old stuff. Yep. Realist or non-realist, and I think that's probably going to continue. Okay, we're out of time. Uh, thanks very much for your attention. Uh, there is uh, up the stairway is food. Uh, we've got half-price books out there. Michael Mandelbaum will be happy to sign them. His name is a rather long one, but I'm sure he'll manage the task. Uh, and thanks very much for your attention for coming out. Thank you.